When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hi, it is me, moi, Madam Adams, Cindy Adams, from Monday through Thursday's daily column in the New York Post. And now it's my mouth on WABC Radio 770 on the dial every Sunday, 1 to 2 p.m. So, just two seconds ago, I hung up the phone. It was our temp governor, Kathy Hochul, who is now sort of the actual governor who replaced the former governor and could be our future governor. Anyway, Kathy Hochul just called me. She has done even more interviews than our mayor, little Lord Fauntleroy. So being a hard-hitting, in-depth reporter, as everyone knows I am, doing only the highest quality work, I went for important stuff. Like I asked her, Tuesday night's primary night. Where'd you get that great white pantsuit? What do I care about your governance? Where did you get the schmata? She says it's from Lafayette. I started there long back, so I went down to their showroom, and my good Irish designer friend took great care of me. Okay, so I said, did you celebrate with a drink afterwards? She said, not beforehand. Afterwards, we went to a big rooftop space in Tribeca, and we did do a little champagne. We went with my staff, children, husband, sister Sheila, my mother, to celebrate. My daughter is 32, and what I needed was to hug her tight. You know, she said, things have changed. When I ran for lieutenant governor, I watched people getting on or off the bus at a subway stop. It was obvious women were afraid to come near me to welcome a woman who might be their governor. But, you know, you simply have to learn to rise to the occasion. And that means being tough as nails if you have to be. I'm not scared. I am not. We have mass shootings, we have crime, killings, insanity. We have inhuman experiences. We are now the Wild West in New York. And what we have to do, we have to show women we can handle whatever comes. I simply have no time to worry. Things have changed. When I ran for lieutenant governor, I watched people getting on or off the bus at a subway stop. It was obvious to me. Women were afraid to come near, to welcome a woman who might be their governor. But you know, you must learn to rise to the occasion. Women must have concern for their own daughters and granddaughters. It means being tough as nails if you have to. And she said, with some of these Supreme Court decisions, I have now got to think of myself for myself and my people. I must surround myself with smart people. Yeah, so what does that mean, I asked. She said, 
in between being with my own close people, I'm thinking of maybe, maybe just getting away for a day or two. She says, I love water. It would be great to take a boat ride for a little while with my husband, who I don't get to see very often. I'd like to slip away and see my family. We have a two-month-old grandchild who I even wanted to bring on stage. So sometimes I grab a couple of hours here and there. But New York is now the Wild West. We do not want people carrying guns. So I'm busy now, and I have to call back the legislature. I'm continuing on with what she said to me, but if anyone just tuned in and don't know what I'm babbling about, I am talking on the phone to Kathy Hochul, our governor, who just called me a few minutes ago. She said to me, listen, the truth is things were tough for me at the beginning. I had to work hard, but when I was just the placeholder, every day for me was a battle. Some people were aggressively against me, but I never took anything back against them. Look, I was down 10 points in the game. New York City people never knew me. I'm from Buffalo. They would say, Buffalo? What's a Buffalo? Look, I know that this is a big weight on my shoulders in terms of women. This win that I got this night, Tuesday night, I do get a little emotional when I think about it. Okay, I said, okay, 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 get to the husband. What about the husband? She said, well, he and my family, that is my legacy. My husband is the most patient. And when I say, listen, I gotta go now, he understands. He'd walk the earth with me. When I say, I've got to go now, I simply have to leave, he understands. He rolls with it. Look, we're married 38 years. We see one another weekends. We go for a walk, or we sneak out to a small restaurant with me in sneakers and sunglasses. Okay, better Her Excellency doesn't drop any ketchup on that white suit. Okay, I am coming back in a second with more interesting information. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. So I am now having the opportunity to speak to Cy Vance, who, as you know, was our celebrated longtime district attorney. Okay, Cy, what period were you our DA? Uh, Cindy, I was the district attorney in three uh, successive terms from 2010 through 2021. And what kind of lousy things were going on in our lives in those days? <laughs> well, there were many lousy things, but there were some <laughs> good things, too. It, we were able in the decade, Cindy, between 2010 and 2020, to drive down shootings, homicides, robberies to levels that had not been seen since the 1970s. When COVID hit in 2020, that really tossed everything, not just in New York, but all around the country in every major city. That destabilized, I think, almost every major city in America. But 
what was done between 2010 and 2020 was simply remarkable, and it makes the increase in violence since mid-2020 all the more concerning and upsetting. Yeah, well, were you back now, would you be able to handle what's going on now that we're the Wild West? <laughs> um, well, we, we, we started the DA's office at a time when crime was much higher than it was, much higher than it was when we left. So I think, uh, you know, I think the, the programs we built, the crime strategies unit focused on very intelligence-driven prosecution of more driving violence, building out a cybercrime unit, a world-class cybercrime unit that made real advances in protecting New York institutions and, and individuals from cybercrime, did a lot on terrorism. You know, we, we did a lot of strong law enforcement actions. Today, um, it's, com- it's more complicated even than it was then. I think it's for a couple of reasons, Cindy. Number one, we're seeing the sort of exhaust of several decades of our country not having, in New York City, not really having a focus plan on how to deal with the homeless, the mentally ill. Uh, and when those folks who were kicked out of mental institutions in the 1970s, fast forward to the 19, yeah, yeah. to the 2000s, they, and there are guys, those, those are our, our guys in jail. There's a huge population of folks who are mentally destabilized in jail. So that's an underlying problem that I think uh, was triggered and then multiplied when COVID hit. And I think that goes the same, Cindy, for all other vulnerable areas. So those folks who may be drug addicted, those folks who were, you know, who were homeless, as I say, kids in disadvantaged communities who were no longer going to school and also didn't have the resources to connect with each other in healthy ways, even, even online. So this is what's happening in New York and it's happening everywhere else. But I, I believe I, that it's so, and I think it was a prior mayor was our dwarf, and the one we've got now is Little Lord Fauntleroy. So I think that might have something to do with it. What does? <laughs> I mean, this will sound like I'm I'm a lunatic, but what actually does a district attorney's office do? I'm so happy to answer that because I think actually it's uh, we should all be teaching civics again in grade school so that we understand how local government and government works. The district attorney is elected. He's a, he or she is elected by the voters in the county in which she, she resides. In my case, it was Manhattan. Manhattan has about 1.6 million people at, who sleep uh, in Manhattan. And up until COVID, it was about three and a half million people during the daytime. So there was a huge shift in population. Uh, Manhattan had a 60 million visitors a year from out of town. Uh, so it also had an enormous population of, uh, you know, of tourists and visitors that affected crime in ways that I can explain. But what a DA does is works with the police department, essentially, in prosecuting cases that are resulting from street arrests by the police, a robbery, someone's arrested, comes down to the DA's office, the district attorney talks to the police officer and witnesses, writes that up as a complaint. Ultimately, may put that into a grand jury, which is required in order to prosecute as a felony. So the DA prosecutes, I'd say, 70% of the cases that are street crime, 
violent crime all the way down to pickpocketing and, and misdemeanors. And then in our office, which is unique, 30 percent of the lawyers were investigators, investigators doing cases involving counterterrorism, terrorism, cybercrime, uh, major economic crime and the like. So that's what a DA does in Manhattan. Uh, 600 lawyers, uh, up to 100,000 cases a year. It's uh, it's a very fast pace. It's dynamic, and it's also sometimes treacherous because you know, something could go wrong at at any moment. Uh, but the job of the DA obviously is a is a job that's focused on public safety. But increasingly, Cindy, and I think appropriately, uh, people are starting to realize, and I believed that prosecuting is uh, you've got to be tough on crime. I couldn't agree more. But I think there are ways that we can get better outcomes, uh, sometimes not by thinking that every case uh, that, that uh, should, results in an arrest should result in a prosecution. I'll, and I'll give you an example. Between 2010 and 2020, that time period I talked about, our office decreased low-level offenses that we prosecuted. These are minor misdemeanors, about 40 to 50 percent. Now, yeah. in that same time period, we reduced homicides, shootings, violent crime by enormous percentages. So the fact of the matter is we proved in that decade that you can be more thoughtful about prosecuting low-level offenders and try to figure out are there better alternatives than locking someone up for stealing a candy bar. Uh, at the same time, you can lower those numbers and lower crime. So I think there's a – you know, everyone's – very upset about what's going on in the city. But if we take ourselves five years back, we had a peace dividend where those policies really worked. Now, when COVID hit, that required us, and I was then, I was no longer after in, until in 2022, the DA, that would have required us to shift some of our policies because you got to, you know, you got to change when the ground game changes. And uh, I think that's, uh, that was what was frustrating people to sense that, um, Given what was going on in the city, uh, we weren't we weren't um, addressing it with uh, addressing it. My foot. I hate the people that we have now, and I don't want to argue with you because you're too brilliant. But we have dwarfs at this moment. Dwarfs. That's what we have. So can I ask you what is cyber security? I don't know what that means. Well, when I was a young DA, cyber crime was stealing computers from the New York Post office, the New York Post offices, taking them down to the loading dock and putting them <laughs> in a truck and going away. That was what it was in the 80s. Cindy, cybercrime in all its forms, from identity theft to um, attacks on critical infrastructure to attacks on businesses with ransomware, this is by any by any definition the fastest growing crime threat and crime trend that we are facing, in my personal opinion, along with COVID, world conflict, and climate, cyber is a fourth C that is presenting us with almost an existential threat. It is uh, the, the attackers are often from outside of our borders and very hard to, uh, to bring to justice. Uh, the pace of cyber attacks of all the kinds I just described is, is, is elevating at an extraordinary rate. And so what it is, it's essentially cybercrime is using the Internet uh, for any number of purposes okay. to commit crime. Okay. Tell us, 
for those of people who might be listening and who are 11 years old, tell us about your family. You come from a very celebrated father. Your father was Secretary of State. What, or what was he? I mean, tell us. Yeah, well, um, my dad was Secretary of State under Jimmy Carter, and he yeah. had been the Deputy Secretary of Defense under Bob McNamara, uh, under President Johnson, and then Secretary of the Army under uh, President Kennedy. So he had a long career in government, and uh, he was also a lawyer uh, in, here in the city, and a very, very nice guy, uh, good dad. Yeah, and uh, and that's who he was, and you know, no, no question that his role model of being a lawyer and doing doing work that seemed even as a young boy to me to be important and it was satisfying to him was absolutely so where did you uh, go to school i went to school i I went to school in dc for a while went to grade school here in new york for a while high school in massachusetts uh college at yale and then uh, went to law school at georgetown after i had a couple years working interestingly for a shipping company over in africa are you, uh, since I know he was with the President Carter, are you close to the Carters? Do you speak to them? No, I, no, I was never close to the Carters, not because I didn't like them, but because I really didn't socialize with them hardly at all. Um, so the answer is no, but not by choice, just because, you know, I, I, I don't think my dad or, or my mother had a close personal relationship with Rosalind or, or Jimmy Carter, not that they weren't friendly or friends, but it just wasn't a, a socializing relationship. Okay, we all know Cy Vance. We all know Cy Vance. What is Cy Vance doing at this moment now, so I can know? Well, I'm sitting on a stone wall looking at my motorcycle, which I just drove up from New York City. That's what oh, I'm doing motorcycle. right now. Oh, good God, yeah. Oh, okay. uh, but I left, when I left the DA's office, I joined the Baker McKenzie firm, which is a very large global firm and an excellent group of lawyers, and I'm chair of their cybersecurity practice. So uh, they have 50 maybe offices and 76, 76 offices in 40 or 50 countries around the world. And cybercrime, when I left the DA's office, I really thought that um, I wanted to keep working sort of on public safety issues, but in the private sector, because I thought I needed to make some money. And also, it was a really interesting opportunity to do it on a global scale. So that's what I'm doing now. And, uh, okay. Very fortunate working. Right now, I'm a good girl. I'm not into any cybersecurity. And I thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on and letting me talk to you. It was such a pleasure, Cy. Thank you, honey. Yeah, pleasure for me. Thanks, Cindy. Have a great weekend. Happy Fourth. Thank you, sweetie. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. So, Edward, how are you, honey? I'm good, dear. I'm not going to the Hamptons, which is always good for me. (laughs) I would like to ask you a couple of questions that only you can answer. I would like you to tell me, in two seconds or less, what the hell is going to happen to my country? 
uh, in, in two answers or two minutes. <laughs> Uh, go ahead. Go. Your country's gonna, your, your country's going to go through a period of, of uh, real uh, gut wrenching. Uh, the economy is going to be terrible for a period of time. Uh, there's no political leadership. Uh, we certainly have a polarized uh, government. Uh, uh, there's no limit to what gasoline prices can go or food prices. And so the rich will do well. The middle class will suffer immensely, and the poor will suffer even more so. So until we get out of this recession, it's awful hard to get out of a recession. We're going to spend enormous sums of money in a war that most people, you know, we care about Ukraine since you don't want Russia to get away with too much. We don't want to fund the war, and we don't want to fund a war that's going to go on for many years. So, Okay, that's the country. I'm going bit by bit. What okay. is going to happen to what used to be my city? Well, you've got a guy who's now the mayor who wants to be a wants to run around and, and uh, go to parties. Uh, uh, the the last yeah. two mayors who are fairly fairly effective, Giuliani and, and Bloomberg, uh, worked pretty hard at their jobs. Uh, they weren't about Bloomberg a little more social than Giuliani, but at least Giuliani had one great term, which he turned the crime around. Uh, Bloomberg for his three terms, uh, one of which he shouldn't have had because term limits, but he still stayed in there. Uh, was a pretty good business uh, uh, mayor. This guy is just basically a party guy. And, you know, in the first first week of your administration, you want to hire your brother uh, for $250,000 to be your security guard. And then you want to run, then you talk about running for president. Uh, you got to look on the, on the history. So in two, those two men I talked about, Giuliani and Bloomberg, who fairly effective president, uh, mayors, bombed when they tried to run for president. And this guy needs to basically focus on getting crime under control here. That's the one thing, though. I hope he can do. It's one thing he's got experience on. If he doesn't do that, then this city is going to get torn apart big time, even worse than it is today. First of all, he's little Lord Fauntleroy. He went to California to have a party with Paris Hilton, as though that is going to help New York. If he wants to help New York, let him go to Bed-Stuy, but he's not doing that. So, okay, we've got that. We've got imbecilics, as far as I'm concerned, for political leaders. Now tell me about the days you ran presidential campaigns. Tell me about a couple of your presidential campaigns. The, the young people don't always know that, Ed. Well, look, uh, I ran Reagan's election campaign in uh, uh, 1984, in which we won 49 states. Uh, the, the, the premise that I always had was you add to a, a, a base of election. You go out and you're looking for new voters all the time. Uh, uh, it's like Trump. If Trump wants to run again now, what he's done in the, in the last year and a half is polarize people, and and not. And when you look you look at the demographics of the country, we're, we're a split country. We basically have uh, almost an even number of Democrats and Republicans, and the largest segment of voters are independents. Forty uh, percent uh, of the voters consider themselves independents. So you've got to appeal to them. You've got to basically go out and convince them uh, what you have some solutions. And there are no solutions today. Uh, every politician wants to get on either Fox or gets on MSNBC or CNN. And in order to do that, you're not the reasonable, smart guy that's offering solutions. You're the guy trashing the other side better than, than his colleagues, which is pretty significant uh, measurement at this point in time. But that's their goal. It's, it's whether it's the, the Matt Gatzes or the, or the or the governor of Florida today who made his reputation going on Fox. They all want to get on Fox. The way you get on Fox is you say outrageous things. The way you get on MSNBC is you criticize Trump and all Republicans. There's no senior people saying, let's come together, let's find some solutions. 
And that's uh, until that happens, uh, then obviously it's not. So I, so I was involved in Reagan's campaigns. I was Jack Kemp's chairman when he ran for president, a good man. I ran, uh, I was chairman Mike Huckabee's campaign when he ran for president. Uh, I've been in, been in politics for a long, long time. I was the chairman of the congressional committee, which I ran all the House races in, in the uh, late, late 70s, 80s. Uh, so I've been, I've been around the game a long time, 50 years. How did you get into this business in the first place? I mean, it must have been George Washington's time. How did you start? It was close. It was close. I started out, I wanted want to be a high school football coach. Uh, uh, and basically, I graduated from college in 1968 when there weren't many coaching jobs anymore. Uh, I was the student body president of the college, and I got an internship in the state legislature. I went down there, worked hard, got jobs in the staff, became the chief of staff of the Republicans in the state assembly. Met Reagan, uh, uh, ran Nixon's campaign in California, uh, went back to Washington in 1972, part of the Nixon administration. Got back here in a couple months, uh, Nixon was in the middle of Watergate. I thought I'd, I thought I'd cross the Rubicon and couldn't get back, uh, but I, I hung in there. <laughs> I hung in there, and, and uh, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've worked, I've worked for a lot of people, and I've been around a lot of people, and I've met a lot of great people, and some not so great. Uh, uh, I was had the privilege of working with Reagan both in the White House. I was the White House political director in both the first and second term, uh, which is the highest ranking, one of the highest ranking jobs. And the wonderful thing about Reagan is he had, he had a great love of this country, and he was a man who was inspirational and loved the young people, uh, which he, he sort of built his got elected governor by running against the young people who were burning down Cal campuses and what have you. So, so uh, if you guys seen, are, seen, if you guys are running behind these presidents. Suppose you don't like these presidents after a while. What happens? How do you work with them? I'm not sure I would know how to do that. What I always, what I always have to remind people, uh, it's only one person gets votes. Uh, in Washington, D.C., most powerful city in the world, there are 538 people who get votes. President, 435 congressmen, 100 senators. Everybody else is an appointed or reflected vote. So the reality is you're there to help the person who got elected. You work for a president, you try and give the president the best advice you can. Sometimes he won't take your advice, and sometimes he shouldn't take your advice. But you got to remember, he's the guy who got the votes. And no matter how important you think you are with driving around big limousines with lights behind you and reading the Wall Street Journal every day as some of these 25-year-old kids are doing, you got to remember it's not you. You're not important. Who's important are the voters. Who are really important is the voters who make the presidents elected or reelected is is part of the reason today's journalists because instead of just reporting they are op opining they're giving their own opinions is that becoming one of the problems sure sure it is i mean there's and and the, the, that plus the fact that everybody now has their twitter account and everybody gets to give their opinions <laughs> so you can be the you know I, two great editors of papers that weren't necessarily my favorite papers but they were great papers was the New York Times, which Abe wrote was in all, was when he was the editor, and Ben Bradley when he was the editor of the Washington Post. And they both had policies that their reporters didn't go on TV. They were reporters who would write for the papers uh, and go out and be investigated. And, and Abe was a good man who would never take a story unless he had three sources, and, and Ben was very similar to that. So what you read in the paper was at least 95% right. Today, I'm not sure what's right and what's not right, and equally as important, any young person can go out and pop off in a, in a in a tweet or an email or what have you, and, and, and it's uh, and they don't judge you on the value of your writing uh, as, a, as a journalist for a long time and a columnist. 
your your value by your readership. Now it's all about how many how many clicks on the blogs do you get? Uh, how many times are your stories repeated? Uh, uh, how much air time do you get? Uh, uh, how do I sell books? Uh, and I think to a certain extent, the, the field of journalism has failed and failed because of that. Equally as important, the country is less interested because everybody has their own source of information. Young people don't read newspapers. I read 14 newspapers a day. Uh, you don't read all of them, the cover to cover, but I've, I've been reading papers all my life. Uh, that's where I go for my news. I don't go to a blog for my news. I go to the press with my news, uh, and I make a judgment of whether it's good or bad. I watch Fox. I watch MSNBC. I watch CNN. I want to know what people say. How can you watch MSNBC and CNN? You're a Fox contributor. I said, I want to know what the other side is saying. I want to know what their thought process is. I, I need to know as much about the business as possible so that I can make valid judgments. Okay, you're not just saying, you're widening it. You're not just saying it's today's journalists. You're saying it's also the blogs and the social spheres that are sure. inflaming us one way or another. Is that it? Absol absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, there's, there's some great journalists around, obviously. But even even the business of journalism, you used to be able to work for Washington Post, New York Times, Chicago Tribune, L.A. Times, and have a career. That's where you went, you worked, you, you moved up in the hierarchy, you became an editor, deputy editor. Uh, today, it's, you know, all these corporations have come in and bought these newspapers. They're, they're casting them aside, cutting back on, on you know, and so there's less information. I mean, a place that needs to be covered is like here in this city. Uh, the city council needs to be covered. The Assembly, State Senate, and Albany need to be covered, and those places are not being covered at all. But yet, what they do has a bigger impact on your lives a lot than what members of the Congress do. And it's just, you know, there's no there's no budgets for those kinds of things. It's all about how do I sell papers, how do I get on TV. So, okay, big difference. I am certainly, I am certainly not going to ask you to pee on anybody. But could you give me your opinion of what we will do about? Biden, if you should excuse the expression. Well, Biden is not going to function as a, as a viable president. I mean, to, to me, <laughs> yes. I've always, I've, I've always, I've always been someone. That, okay, you get elected president. Uh, I respect that. I haven't worked for three presidents. Worked for Nixon and Ford and Nixon and Reagan. So I respect the office of the presidency. But here's what happened to Biden yesterday that made me lose all faith in him whatsoever. You don't go to an international conference with world leaders watching and hold a press conference and attack the Supreme Court. If you want to attack the Supreme Court, you do that back here. You don't do that in Spain in front of NATO. That conference was not about NATO. It was not about abortion. That conference was about the war of Russia and you're Ukraine. Right, you're right, you're but he right, stood up right. there and made, made his big deal out of that. Uh, so to me, how would he like it if John Roberts went to a big conference somewhere in Italy and stood up and said, we have the worst president in the world. I think he's a piece of crap. Uh, let's throw him out of office. Uh, oh, that's not nice, how it works. nice. I'm so glad I had you on the air. Nice, nice, nice. This is exactly what I feel. I mean, he's he's just, he, well, I don't want to say anything because I'm not allowed to use those words on the air. But I want to thank you for coming on. The problem with you, actually, Ed, is you never have anything to say. That is the problem. Okay? <laughs> it's always been my problem. <laughs> thank you. Anytime, thank you, sweetheart, you. for coming on. My, my thank pleasure. you for talking have to me. Have a great me. weekend. Okay, Thank babe. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I have now spoken to all the people who can barely speak. They speak in paragraphs. And now I just want to come to a little joke. Being election time, 
This dealer offered his local politician a sports car. The politician refused, saying, Sir, my honor won't permit me to accept such a gift. The dealer then said, Okay, so suppose I sell you this, an entire, whole, complete vehicle for just $10. A pause, and then the politician said, In that case, I'll take two. We are now going back to being July 4th. So if you're stuck bumper to bumper on the Cross Bronx, Henry Hudson, or Northern State Parkways, or the Verrazano, or the Triborough, or whatever's that throg's neck thing, or even the Bronx Whitestone, or if there's a jam on the Belt Parkway because some crappy Edsel just broke down, do not blame lousy drivers. The real problem? Robert Moses. This mid-twentieth century master builder created our bridges, tunnels, roadways, highways, and transformed our metropolitan New York landscape. He's gone now, but he is coming back on stage. The play is Straight Line Craze. It stars Rafe Fiends, Fines, Phones, whatever, however you pronounce it. It opened in London, and it's heading here. And it says that for 40 years, Moses, who never specialized in architecture or engineering or the Bible, it's not that Moses, it's Robert Moses, he was New York City's most powerful man. Well, who knows? Maybe when it opens, the theater will stick a toll booth in the lobby. Okay, enough temporarily with patriotism. Comes to us soon a book. It is called A Real Life Fairy Tale, Princess Diana. It's for the young'uns. It comes in September. The author says, Nothing is like it on the market that I could find for my daughter. It follows Diana from childhood to teenager to young lady to the prince. I wanted to introduce her elegance, grace, philanthropy into today's generation. She built bridges to a world people forgot. She supported a hundred charities. She exemplified grace and approachability. Ten percent of the proceeds go to a UK youth center. Prince William is on that board. Maybe next comes a comic strip to immortalize me, 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 Megan. Next, maybe. Also, comes also now a new crime drama. It's from Chrissy Teigen, Mrs. John Lennon. She is a crime junkie and is co-producing HBO's The Way Down, God, Greed, and the Cult of Gwen Shamblin. What's a Gwen Shamblin, you ask. She says, look, lots of weird projects, dirty sex story things have come to me for producing possibilities. I wasn't interested until seeing Gwen Shamblin's photo. Who is Gwen Shamblin? Chrissy said she founded a cult called The Way Down, Way, W-E-I-G-H. She named it a Christian diet program. She became a church leader. Then she died in a plane crash. And then she said, I am addicted to crime 
podcasts. This was Chrissy saying, and she said, I thought, you know, there is a story there about this lady's crazy cult, weight loss scam, and plane crash, and the fact that it wasn't all on the up and up. Tegan says, I am no investigative reporter. I don't like to scare anyone away. I just like to tell a story. I'm very open. I want people to feel comfortable, not go in guns blazing. The series is on now. And right now, right at this very, very moment, I'm going to talk to you about several other things. I'm going to tell you that Tribeca has got a new restaurant named Nines, N-I-N-E-S. It just fed Farrell, Katie Holmes, Barry Diller, Jane Rosenthal, plus in the corner table, inhaling specialty burgers and potato whatevers, R. De Niro and his son Julian, and A. Period Cuomo. The place closed around midnight, maybe when it ran out of ketchup. Cuomo, Andrew, does restaurants. It's his thing. His table location, by the way, has pinpointed his position in life. Let me tell you that as governor, his dinners were often in some upstairs, closed-off, private space. Private attention, private room, private waiters. Recently, when he just recently, just for a first time, sat down in population, it was like sending out a shout out. Fellow diners who have lately, for a very first time shot ever, seen him sitting in a populated restaurant area like every other plain everyday citizen, they say that once they saw him sitting at a regular table in the regular room among the regular population, they knew immediately he was finished running. Okay, now, music execs. I want to give you a music story. They are humming a new theory. With buyers viewing too many TikTok videos, they have decided future pop songs will run only six seconds. Did you hear me? Pop songs in future may run only 16 seconds. Why? You have to understand that music executives are money-oriented, not music-oriented. They buy catalogs to make big bucks, as in Do, D-O-U-G-H, Remy. Their love for music is flat. So this idea, psychologists say, the brain kicks into a good space after a piece of music. Okay, we're talking a little July 4th, 1861. Not that I was there in person, you understand, but I am reporting. Abraham Lincoln called elections big boils. They're painful, he said. But once over, the nation becomes healthy again. Several southern states then, at that time, declared against favoring all men created equal. But Washington Franklin Hamilton declared that dividing this new 
land of America would be a no-no. We cannot divide it or carve it up because then, they said, it could create another Europe, a disjointed cluster. And that is why our founding fathers wanted our disparate states to come together as one union. I'm going on with my history. July 4th, 1861. In Congress, Lincoln said, those who can fairly carry an election can also suppress a rebellion and ballots. Pay attention. He said, these are his quotes, ballots are what's rightful and peaceful successors of bullets and that when ballots have fairly and constitutionally decided there can be no successful appeal except to ballots themselves. Back then Lincoln's appeal fell on deaf ears and the southern states became insurrectionists. Let us hope that on this July 4th we can remember to disagree. We can fight we can revere and respect our United States of America. Please, let us remind ourselves of the greatness of our United States and our need to come together. Yeah. Okay. We disagree. We fight. But we have to come back together. And so do we have troubles with our friends our relatives, our bosses, our co-workers, or our employees. That is what is always going to happen to us. And I want to thank you all for listening to me. I want to hope you have a happy July 4th. I want to hope you love one another, even if it's not other people who aren't so nice and are our politicians. But please listen to me next Sunday, 1 o'clock, on WABC 770 on the dial. And thank you very, very much. Bye.